this was the news headline um, last week. Evangelical Lutheran Church installs first transgender bishops. I don't know if you guys saw this headline. This was uh, in the ABC News. It was also in Washington Post and some other things. So you can see the sub-headline there. The Evangelical Lutheran Church of America installed its first openly transgender bishop in a service held in San Francisco's Grace Cathedral on Saturday. Now, this person's been in the, in the uh, congregation for a while. It's been a bishop. Now they have been installed at an even greater authority. So this made national headlines. Okay, and so it's fascinating to me, and this is from this uh, individual. The first council of Nicaea's first action was to try to limit the leadership roles of trans pastors and bishops. I'm grateful the Lutherans of the ELCA are beginning to dismantle this and some of the other hurdles, BI opposed BPC, that means uh, black indigenous people of color and LGBTQ pastors encounter. And I put a what on here because the council of Nicaea has nothing to do with that, just so you know. <laughs> Um, what it, what the, we think, and I've, I've been researching this a little bit, is this is a reference to the first council, the first the canons of the council. The canons of these early church councils had rules and of behavior for clergy, and one of them was that people who were castrated, often by choice, were not allowed to become bishops. And the reason was is they were doing it. It was an extreme form of asceticism. Asceticism meaning like denying yourself in order to enter the kingdom of God it had nothing to do with these sort of issues. Do you get what I'm saying? It had everything to do, because they had an opposite problem. They had people that were trying to be so spiritual, they were like impugning the body. Do you get what I'm saying? Like they had, it was more like the body is so evil or so corrupt that I'm, a, I'm going to literally geld myself for the sake of the kingdom. Okay, so they had the, do you get what I'm saying? They had the opposite problem that this, this individual is actually talking about. But this is actually in the uh, more progressive synods. This is common. If you go to other synods, you're going to find this sort of thing. But this thinking, that's why I put what? This is just a misunderstanding of what that council was about in the first place. And then second of all, after since 325 AD, which is when that council was, and 381 in Constantinople when we've had our, our creed, basically, you're are we all of a sudden smart and we have 1,500 years of church history that was dumb before us? Like, what I mean, this, this sort of language is just odd to me. But this is part of understanding. It's not, I'm not trying to pick on this individual as much as I'm saying this is showing you how practical this is. This is impacting the church, okay? Especially, but it's, and it's not like uh, confessional synods, like the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod are immune from things like this. This happens in other places too. So again, I mean, when you get headlines like this that are on ABC News, this is, this is, this is me talking now. I have Baptistic family friends who are like Baptist churches or Calvinist churches or, you know, Bible churches. And they say, why are you part of those crazy Lutheran churches? Uh -huh. And they see these, they see these headlines. It's like, well, okay, you have to understand there are every denomination, every flavor has kind of a progressive wing and a more kind of like biblical wing. So if you go to Presbyterians, the PCUSA traditionally has been more progressive, where the OPC and the BPC and others are more confessional. Do you know what I mean? If you go to the Baptists, the American Baptists tend to be more progressive. The Southern Baptists tend to be a little more conservative. And you can go on and on and on. Every de denomination has this. So this is a headline. Again, not to pick on the individual as much to show you that why we're understanding the time. These are headlines. These are real headlines that people read. And so having an answer for this stuff is worth worth the the effort, and then of course even just the the, the rhetoric from this individual on Twitter. Now, granted, Twitter is a cesspool. Okay, I hate Twitter, but I'm on it for news, and I also like just looking at because you can't see some of this without having an account. I've tweeted once in like two years. Okay, so I just I don't use it in the way that it's meant to be used. I use it for information, if that makes any sense, um, and because people are on it. But this is just straight. This logic is strange. But if you if you believe that your identity is constructed. And that your whole existence is based on your own personal identity, it leads to this. And so remember, and so this is, I wanted to go through 
for those of you who missed blanks on this, he went through some of this. This is the blanks on this, and I'm answering right now letter A. I'll go back to the introduction in a little bit, but four things to clarify. The modern person is characterized by, and that blank there on letter A is expressive individualism. You're seeing that in that headline. Okay, who I am on the inside, you see that from Truman, so the guy that we've been watching, expressing outwardly what one feels inwardly. So in this uh, Bishop's case for the ELCA, even though I was born a biological male, I expressed myself as a female, and so now I am living outwardly what I already was feeling inwardly. So that's expressive individualism at its outset. You can see the blank for the rest of that, right? Expressing outwardly what one feels inwardly, or another way of saying is this makes your self-expression your authentic self. That search for authenticity, being authentic, is a huge part of it. Um, I, there's another author, and I can't remember his name off the top of my head, that calls it the cult of authenticity. I'm just being my authentic me, right? That's very much part of this expressive individualism, right? So I, how I feel inwardly is how I should express myself outwardly. And so Carl Truman believes that that's one of the features. He has four, and the first one for the modern self, okay? The next one I'll answer in just a second, and I'll, and I'll rewind it. But I want to show you something from the scriptures about this because I want to make sure that we stay scripture-focused. I was talking to a couple people coming in. I have no interest in like, and, and this, no, I shouldn't say have no interest. In this class, my point is not political, is the best way to say it. I'm not endorsing political parties. I'm not, I mean, I might show a political person who's making a comment that represents the times to show you how it's in the mainstream of the culture, but I'm not using this. I'm not coming up and endorsing parties or candidates. These are, these are political statements. These are worldview issues. So in other words, do I have political opinions? Yes. Do I think people should be involved politically? Yes. I mean, there's certain things. We call that the kingdom of the right and the left, okay, in, in Lutheran theology. But I'm going to do my best to show you that politics is downstream from culture, meaning that we get what we deserve politically, that that's actually a symptom of a larger issue, that it's politicians are trying to get votes, right? And so who they're getting votes from matters, right? And so in other words, they wouldn't even be elected unless there was other things going on that's causing them to be elected. Do you know what I mean? So politics is actually downstream from culture. I'm not going to make too many political statements unless it's just about worldviews or just cultural moments, but not, you know, nonpartisan. I'm not up here talking about Republicans and Democrats and libertarians and stuff like that. I'm, all, I'm about philosophy and worldviews at this point. But so say, with, that in, with that in mind, look at the scriptures say, I don't know if you know this passage exists, but this is in Deuteronomy 22.5. A woman should not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Anybody know that verse is actually there? Yes. It's often avoided or not talked about. And here's why. It's in the Old Testament law. And people say, well, that's the Old Testament. Or there's also those weird laws about not eating shellfish. Or you know what I'm saying? So usually people try to go through that. And there's some really good uh, commentaries on this. But if you read a, a, a Torah.com, it's a Jewish site, not Christian, Jewish site. And a female theologian says on that on this passage, her conclusion on the bottom of this, I think she's a uh, kind of a moderately liberal rabbi or something. She says the reason this is here is because the Jews were all about boundaries and setting up boundaries for their, their culture, right? The reason you don't need a shellfish is because it violates the boundary between water and land. It has legs, but it's in the water. You see the symbolism there? Well, in this case, male and female, there's a boundary there, right? There's a difference. Okay, and we need to preserve those differences and trying to confuse those differences is a violation of the boundaries of God's created order. It's about order. Okay, and so even somebody on that website is admitting that that's what this this is teaching people. Now, how that's going to look culturally is very different. But let's just say for the, for the sake of argument, 
that you don't like this passage. That is the Old Testament. You're going to throw, well, that's just the old law. Jesus came to, you know, give us new freedom in Christ or something like that, right? And that's what you'll hear. Well, we have similar thoughts in the New Testament too. I don't know if you know this, but 1 Corinthians 11. Let's go to the next passage, okay? This is Deuteronomy 22.5. Every man who prays and prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Uh, we can parse this, but I, I'm going to explain this passage in just a second. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. That last comment, nobody knows what he's talking about there, by the way. But because of the angels, strange, strange comment. But let, let it keep going. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. It is, proper, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, is it a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is a really strange passage. Okay, and when you look at this, so you got to say, what is he talking about? And one of the ways we do this is historical grammatical interpretation. Here's what we know. There's probably two or three references culturally here that we've lost through time. Number one. A woman who had an uncovered head was available. It was like a wedding ring. So if you had an uncovered head and you were married, that's like saying you're, that's like you're advertising in church. You catching what's going on here? Okay, so Paul's saying, wait a minute. Are you married or are you not? Okay, that's part of the, part of the issue. Men, when they covered their heads, were performing pagan rites. You'll see statues of Roman emperors like Julius, like, uh, Julius Caesar, not actually Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, his nephew. And he's when he's acting as priest, he has his head covered. So if a man was in church with his head covered, he was acting like a pagan. And if a woman was in church without her head covered, with her without her head covered, she was advertising. Catch what I'm saying? So we got to think. So first off, think think along those lines. So I want to just say that first. So what's his actual point? Look at this. What study Bible say about this passage? So again, this is in First Corinthians 11. This is fascinating. This is from the Archaeology Study Bible. Paul desires men to look like men and women to look like women. Each sex respecting its created identity and role in both appearance and action. See this? So contextually, he's saying men be men, women be women. That's the overall point. It's going to look different culturally. Okay? How it looks in Kenya and how that looks in Mexico and how that looks in Japan. There will be some cultural differences. But men look like men. Women look like women. Okay? Act like act, act with how God's created you. This is from the ESV study Bible. Although the norms of appropriate hairstyle and dress may vary from culture to culture, Paul's point is that men should look like men in that culture and women should look like women in that culture rather than seeking to deny or disparage the God-given differences between the sexes. So don't let somebody tell you, again, if this is just contextual. These are scholars that are writing these study Bibles, right? Don't let somebody tell you that, well, it's just in the Old Testament. You get what I'm saying? We have this confirmed in the New Testament. The Lutheran study Bible also makes similar remarks on this issue. Paul is concerned about our conduct, but also about the roles God has given to each gender. The removal of covering would eliminate the gender distinctions God established. The Lord has provided order in the family through faithful husbands and fathers and dedicated wives and mothers. When we seek to live in ways other than how he has called us to live, we move away from him. Yet we are not abandoned to drift about in this world. God's son loved us with a perfect love. 
sacrificing himself on the cross for us. The forgiveness won for us there cleanses us from all our failures, even when we have failed those closest to us. And there's a little prayer, a devotional prayer, made new in you, O Christ, we love as you loved and serve as you served, set our hearts to you to do our will, O God, amen. So that's the, so if you have the Lutheran Study Bible, that's under the, the study notes for this passage in 1 Corinthians 11. So it's a, there's a consensus view, Archaeological Study Bible, ESV Study Bible, Lutheran Study Bible, do you know what I'm saying? Almost all scholars that study this text think that what Paul is saying here is that men need to be men and women need to be women. Are you, are you tracking me on this? So that, in other words, it's not just in Deuteronomy, it's reconfirmed by Paul later. And it's also confirmed by his use of words like natural and unnatural in Romans 1 and some other passages. I can develop more of this for you if you would like. And so we have an issue here. So how do you, as a church body, for example, look at the news headline, ordain a transgender bishop in that case? What has to happen to you culturally for that to happen? And the answer is, is instead of looking here at your identity in Christ or looking at the scriptures first, you look within first. And then say, God must have made me this way, so therefore it's okay. See how that works? So it's a, it's, it's, it's a worldview issue. It's where you start. What's your starting point? I like to say that a worldview is like a set of glasses. So if you put your set of glasses on and you've got rose-colored glasses, everything's going to look red. Okay? If you have a different set of glasses, prescription glasses, everything's going to look sharper, right? My argument that I'm going to make is a lot of the conflict that we have right now is a worldview conflict. It has nothing to do with like, well, these people hate people or these people love people, or um, it's not a political issue. It's a worldview. It's a presuppositional conflict. Those things that you assume about the world going in before you even, even have a conversation, which we all have, by the way. Great example of this. Uh, when you woke up this morning, you didn't expect gravity not to work, right? You don't, you don't wake up in the morning thinking, I'm going to be on the ceiling. You expect it to work. That's called uniformity in nature. We expect the laws of nature to be consistent and that the law of gravity in Idaho is the law of gravity also in Japan. So when you fly to Japan, the law of gravity doesn't cease. It still exists. That's called uniformity in nature. Almost every human being assumes a certain degree of uniformity in nature. Another way this works is when I look at the Andromeda galaxy, 2 million light years away, you can see it with the naked eye when you don't have light pollution, okay? When you look at the, light, the Andromeda galaxy, you assume by looking at that, that two plus two equals four there, just like it does here. Do you get what I'm saying? That's called uniformity in nature. Every single human being functions understanding the uniformity of nature. That's called a presupposition. We don't think about it. Huh, I wonder if this works. We just act like it works. That's called a, that's a worldview assumption, uniformity in nature. Another one are laws of logic. For example, if I say I'm in the parking lot and I say I'm not in the parking lot, one of those is incorrect. Either they're both wrong, and I'm in the church or something, or one is incorrect. It's called the law of non-contradiction. We assume those laws of logic apply, again, uniformly and naturally. Do you see what I'm saying? Those, that's a presupposition. We don't go around saying, huh, I wonder if the laws of logic will fail, and I could be in both places at once. Right? This seems like a silly conversation, but it's important because we all have presuppositions. And now let's take that sort of idea and extrapolate that. So if you assume that your authentic you is where you start, how are you going to look at the world, right? If you assume that's all about individual rights or individual expression, expressive individualism, if that's healthy, then you're going to look at the world that way. And people that interfere with that or cultures or political programs or laws or rules and regulations that interfere with that are oppressive in that mindset, because you've got those glasses on and you're going to look at that and say, oppressor, they're stopping me from being my authentic self. 
That's where that language, see where that language is coming from? If you honestly believe that, and if that's your worldview, you're going to look at people like Orthodox Christians who believe the scriptures, for example, and say the Bible itself is oppressive. That's where we're headed. Or laws of logic and laws of logic are oppressive. I don't know. I will get to that when we get to credible theories. There are schools of thought, thankfully not like massively well-known, where laws of logic, the scientific method, and those sort of things are now tools of colonial oppression. And those are, and the reason they're tools of colonial oppression is because we need alternative knowledges, which is a really strange way of saying this. And so it's, I'll only make one comment. We'll scroll one. My only one comment is we try to say, hey, we need to help these, these countries like in Africa develop, right? Have better sanitation and access to clean water and those sort of things. Those assumptions come out of a certain worldview that we can use science and use logic and use technology to create healthier environments, right? So now you're saying we can't do that thing because that's a form of colonial oppression. So the people you're wanting to help, you're now going to deny access to the things that would help them. Do you see what's going on here? We have cognitive dissonance. It, there's a conflict here. There's cognitive dissonance. And I'm not making that up, by the way. This is coming from secular theories um, that are actually, there's a book out um, by a couple of, uh, a math professor in particular, and he's pointing out these inconsistencies. But then their response is, well, you're a math professor. That's impressive too. There's, there's not one right answer. And so there's, there's a whole, he, there's a whole chain of things going on here. But I think Truman, the reason we're doing the expressive self first is I think Truman's onto something with this because I think the reason people talk that way is they assume expressive individualism from the outset. They assume that I am me and that I determine my own reality and I determine my truth and I determine my expression. And if you deny me from living my truth and living my authentic, authentic life, there we go, you are inherently oppressive. So if you haven't heard that language before, that's where it's coming from. Okay, and I'm going to get you to Truman in a second. Okay, so anyways, on your outline, and for those of you who are following along, and of course, there's no quiz, okay? But if you want to keep track, so where we, we ended on this, uh, we kind of ended on B. So this first one, we had, according to Carl Truman, we live in revolutionary times, revolutionary times. And then the second one was, the thinkers in this study are from the last 300 years. He goes back to the 1700s and then goes forward. Now, like any revolution... It takes a while. It's not like the first generation we're running around crazy. It takes decades, generations for some of this stuff to come into fruition, right? Karl Marx is writing in the 1800s. Charles Darwin is writing in the 1800s. You know, Sigmund Freud's writing in the late 18, early 1900s. It's not like everybody that read him said, oh, yeah, this is true. It took you, right? It took a while for this stuff to percolate in the culture. And so you don't really see it until 40s, 50s, 60s, 20th century that starts to become even more popular, right? And so that's why it's like, well, this stuff's really old. It's old, but it takes a while to root itself into the popular imagination, right? So let's look. I want, and, and oh, and the other blank. So modern person, you already have it. Expressive individualism, expressing outwardly. I did that. The second one, the modern person sees happiness as an inward sense of psychological happiness or psychological satisfaction, okay? What makes me happy? What makes me fulfilled? The analogy that Truman used, for those of you who are with us, is job satisfaction that he talks about his granddad who worked in a steel factory or a, a sheet metal factory. And he said that would have been the most tedious job ever. But if he would have asked his grandfather, Hey, do you get satisfaction in your work? He would have said, well, yeah, it puts food on the table, allows me to give shoes for my kids, allows them to go to school, provides, you see how he answered and it's outwardly directed. So it's right. So satisfaction, that's your blank there used to be outwardly directed. Today's satisfaction is now inwardly directed. So as Truman says, instinctually, what happens to me is I see that and I go, I get a real kick out of teaching. See how it's about him? 
And it's not that that's evil or wrong. It's just showing how this is part of our shift. It's not that you shouldn't be satisfied in your job or that you can't enjoy it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that if you view your existence not only as an expressive individual, but also your internal happiness, put those, see where he's going with this, start putting this stuff together. Okay. And so it's, they don't exist in a vacuum on this. I want to go to the next one. Now. So where we picked up was there, and, I'll, and I'll, I rewound it a little bit. He's going to keep talking and then he's going to go to letter C, which is the modern world. So I'm going to pick that up right there. Okay. So let me load this up and we will watch together. <clears throat> sense of psychological well-being yeah, well-being you said that way we live in a world now where happiness is not as it was for my grandfather something achieved by looking outward it's something accomplished by looking inward and that's a function of course of uh, my first point expressive individualism the idea that the inner life is really what makes me me and is the really important thing in my existence my inward sense of happiness comes from being outwardly who and what we feel ourselves to be inwardly. So the second point then, a modern person sees happiness really in psychological terms as a sense of inner psychological well-being. The third point, the modern world sees all things immanently. Maybe I should spell that just so that you, you, know, you make it clear that I'm talking here about immanence, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T-L-Y, immanently. What do I mean by that? Well, the great uh, Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor talks about what he calls the immanent frame. What does he mean by that? He means that we live in a world now where everything is to be understood in terms of the limits of the material world that there is nothing beyond this world that provides this world with its meaning or sense. Again, you might say, well, isn't that how everybody thinks? Well, I say, no. You don't have to go back very far to find people who didn't think that way. Think about living in the Middle Ages. If you lived in the Middle Ages and you were wandering through a wood late at night, you'd be terrified about being carried away by the goblins. That strikes us as bizarre now. But that sense of the way the, the supernatural pervades the natural was very, very strong in the Middle Ages. If you'd uh, been caught in a thunderstorm, you would not have thought of the thunderstorm as a natural occurrence. You'd have thought of it as an act of God. Oddly, we still have that term uh, in law for insurance policies. Some, you know, if your house is destroyed by an earthquake, then technically it may have been uh, destroyed by, quotes, an act of God, things that, that are sort of random and, and that can't be explained in some way. We still refer to them as acts of God, but we don't mean that in quite the same way they would have meant in the Middle Ages. When Luther, narrowly missed by a thunderbolt, for him, that's God's judgment coming against him. It's not just a natural... Uh, electric shock caused by a collision of ice crystals high in the atmosphere. That sense of the way the supernatural pervaded the natural was strong. Think in America. If you, uh, if you think back to the founding of uh, America, you think back to the Puritans. It was the Puritan practice uh, each week, I think, to, to have a sermon on providence, on the way that God was guiding history. Because the Puritans, their understanding of themselves was intimately connected to their understanding of how this world connected to the greater supernatural nature of being and of the universe. 
We might find a more specific and perhaps more important for this course uh, example of this in terms of law. Think of morality. Think of law. Laws traditionally have been seen in societies prior to our own as in some way derived from an authority outside of society. Ancient Greeks, Lycurgus, the semi-mythical founder of the city of Sparta, receives the Spartan law code from the oracle at Delphi. So if anyone had ever said to a Spartan king, why do we have to obey these laws? The answer would have been, we obey them because they were given to us by the gods. The supernatural world has shaped the way we must behave in our ordinary, you might say, secular or social world. We see that in Christianity, a great tradition of natural law that stems from the Middle Ages. Uh, is rooted ultimately in the idea that the way the world is to be organized here on earth is to be connected in some way to the character of God himself in eternity. That's what Charles Taylor would characterize as a transcendent frame, that the way we think about this world is connected to the transcendence of the supernatural, that which is beyond this world. The modern age is broken decisively with that. Modern age has broken absolutely decisively with that. And one of the most dramatic ways we see that, of course, is the moral one, the moral sense. Ethics, what is right and what is wrong. Traditionally, that was rooted in some sort of notion of the will of the gods or the will of God. Now it's more and more rooted in what works. Connecting back to my second point, what works to make me happy? What works to make the most people happy? That's become the way in which moral thinking, ethical thinking is driven, as we shall see in, in later lectures. That's an imminent way of looking at the world. And that marks us off from those who have gone before us. That brings me then to my fourth and final point. And it's really the point where that moral transformation is most dramatically obvious to us today. And that's the modern world is dominated by the effects of the sexual revolution. What do I mean by the sexual revolution? Well, I'm really talking about the dramatic change in the understanding of sex and its significance that's taken place between, say, the late 1950s, early 1960s and, and today. I mean, it's ongoing every week, every year. We see new changes to morality and matters involving sexuality. So it's an ongoing revolution. It connects, though, to the first three points I've made here. I want to offer a little bit of a sharper definition of the sexual revolution, really laying the groundwork for later lectures. First of all, what do I mean by this? I mean, I don't mean that it's simply a broadening or loosening of old standards and categories. The sexual revolution is not simply a, a broadening of what has been accepted before. It actually involves a fundamental overturning and repudiation of what has been done before on the grounds that traditional morality isn't actually healthy at all. It's repressive. It prevents us from, guess what, being who we really are inside. It's inimical to expressive individualism and to the idea of happiness as that inner sense of psychological uh, satisfaction. So what do I mean by this overthrowing of traditional standards? A couple of aspects to this. First, 
It involves, let's say, not simply a rejigging or a broadening or a redefinition of old categories. It involves their fundamental overthrow or rejection. Think of modesty, for example, the concept of modesty. It's a long tradition, especially in, in religiously conservative circles, a long tradition of debates about modesty, and it tends to come down on the whole to uh, how long can a skirt be? Or how short can a skirt be before it isn't modest? Uh, should women wear bikinis or uh, bathing suits at, uh, at the seaside? Those are the kind of debates that have gone on uh, within Christian circles, within conservative Jewish circles, within Mormon circles, time immemorial. But notice, Notice that today, the very notion of modesty is actually deemed ridiculous. What we're seeing in society today on the whole are not debates about what it is and is not modest. The whole idea of modesty is completely ridiculous. I'll give you a, a, a cultural example from a few years ago. I've never seen the film, uh, The 40-Year-Old Virgin. Never seen it. But I know it's a comedy just from the title. How do I know that? Well, I live in a culture where virginity is not regarded as a virtue anymore. 40-year-old virgin is regarded as a ridiculous thing because that person has somehow not fulfilled what they should be as a true and genuine human being. Virginity has come to look intrinsically ridiculous in the culture at large. And that's a fascinating move. It reflects deep changes in the culture. As I say, not simply an expansion of what people have thought before, but a fundamental rejection of what people have thought before. And again, not unrelated to my earlier points, particularly the third one, because modesty and notions of modesty were traditionally rooted in what? The idea that there were transcendent standards of human behavior to which we here on earth are to conform ourselves. But that's not the whole of the sexual revolution. The second interesting aspect of it is this. Sexual revolution isn't simply a matter of behavior. People have always broken society's rules on sexual matters. They've always been adulterers, always been those who engage in sexual relations with their own sex. I remember uh, as, a, as a fairly naive undergraduate being quite shocked uh, in, a, in a Greek poetry reading seminar at college when I suddenly realized the love poem I was reading was written by one woman to another woman. It's gone on time immemorial. But there's a difference again in the modern approach to these things, and it's this. These things in the past have always been regarded as breaking the rules. Society's standards have been different by and large. Now the rules have been so attenuated as to be almost but not quite non-existent, so they cannot be broken. The rules are virtually gone. So it's not that, yeah, people have always committed adultery. It's now adultery carries no social stigma or shame in the way that it would have done for generations past. And that represents an interesting change in the way we think. And thirdly, and finally, about the sexual revolution, uh, the sexual revolution is about identity. Yeah, I said, I mentioned a few uh, moments ago, that a poem written by a woman to a woman, love poem from ancient uh, Greece. What's different today is this. Sex has changed from being something people do to being something people are. Gay is now no longer a description of an activity so much as it is 
a description or a statement of identity. The fact that we now think of ourselves not simply in those psychological terms I've been outlining earlier in this lecture, but we think of ourselves primarily in terms of our sexual desire, we even have that term of relatively recent vintage sexual orientation. The fact that we think that those things are fundamental to who we are, that's a radical break with the past. Lots of homosexual activity in ancient Greece. Nobody thought of themselves as gay. Fascinating change. So why has all this come about? Obviously, as I said at the start of this class, this is too big a story to be told in eight 20-minute lectures. But what I want to do is look at some of the key figures, some of the key ideas that have helped to shape the modern world that looks as I have described it. First, though, before we go to the modern world, we need to go back to the 18th century. We need to assess the significance of a remarkable Genevan philosopher, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and the movement, Romanticism, that his thinking inspired. Okay, so for those of you who are, you know, paying attention and struggling with blanks, you want these blanks, you don't have to have them, of course, just to kind of make sure we have them. The world, okay, so on letter C, go back to letter C, the modern world sees things imminently with an A, imminent, I-M-M-A, okay, imminently, meaning that there's no transcendent reference point. There's no God or gods that you're accounted for. All that exists is the material world. That's that other blank under C there. Everything is understood in terms of the limits of the material world. We sometimes call this materialism. We sometimes also call this naturalism, the idea that nature is all that exists. Now, what's funny about that one, and I always point this out to my students when we talk about apologetics and creation evolution issues and stuff like that, is when we get to those sort of issues, you do realize that naturalism cannot be naturalistically proven. Think about it. It's, in, it's inherently contradicts. So we'll prove naturalism naturalistically. It is a what? A presupposition. It's a worldview. You assume it. See what's going This is what I mean. This is why this is about worldviews. Okay. Okay. Uh, materialism, same thing. Can you prove materialism materially? Is the statement that you're making material? You know what I mean? We can, we can talk, we can debate those, but you get what I'm saying? You've got a lot of people are inconsistent there. So before this, look, it says before the modern age, the supernatural and the natural were, you can use whatever word you want, intertwined, interconnected, one and the same. So he used the famous example in a Lutheran tradition. It's, it's very, very common for us to hear the story of Martin Luther early in his life in the thunderstorm, right? Lord, if you spare me, I'll become a monk. <laughs> but that's, that's how they thought, right? It was not like there was this huge divide between nature and their normal everyday existence. He didn't say, oh, look, the ice crystals in the atmosphere are rubbing together and creating friction and creating this negative charge with the earth. He's thinking, God's going to kill me if I don't get my life right. That's literally what he thought. And the ancient Greeks were saying the same thing. Look, Zeus is busy, or they're in the, in the ocean. Look, Poseidon, I made Poseidon unhappy, right? You see what I mean? And so for, for the Greeks, or for the Romans, or for the Jews, or for medieval Christians, early Renaissance Christians, there was no divide there. So that's a difference. That's a shift that's taking place. That's why he uses that illustration. So it, to, to build off that, he says, traditionally, law came from the outside. It, came, it was imposed on society, whether it was by the gods, at Delphi for Sparta, or whether it's for Christians, it's natural law as communicated through reason or through the scriptures in special revelation. We know the will of God and it comes from outside of us. And when you eliminate that, law's gotta come from somewhere else if you're gonna have laws at all. If you don't want anarchy, where the law's gonna come from? And so that's the next one. Now law comes from within or pragmatism, practical, what works? What makes the most people happy? 
uh, if you want a technical term, utilitarianism. John Stuart Mill. The best laws are those that make the most amount of people happy. So if it works for the most of society, then it's a good law. But if it doesn't work, then we should change. So there's no eternal standard. It, the laws can change as society changes. Whatever works for the vast mass majority amount of people, that's the best thing. John Stuart Mill, uh, John Dewey, who invented the Dewey Decimal System. A lot of those kind of, it's very American philosophy, pragmatism, whatever works. Okay, so John, uh, John Dewey is another one. John Stuart Mill, that's very much that pragmatism idea. So since we don't have an outside frame, let's just make it work because we, we are only accountable to each other or we all have to live here sort of thing. Okay, the, so the letter D, the modern world is dominated by the sexual revolution or the effects of the sexual revolution. And the way he says this is there has been a dramatic change in the understanding of sex and its what? Significance is the word. And I love that he uses that word. There's a significance about it. It's not just a recreational activity. There's a significance about it, okay? Um, especially since the 19, he says late 50s, but really 60s, okay? 1950s and 60s. And it's still been going on. You know, some people say, well, back in the 60s. Like, well, the 60s never really ended, if you think about it. Right. There was some stuff that happened. And he and if you want to be precise, it's like late 50s. You have books published like The Feminine Mystique and stuff like that. So there's some stuff that kind of goes before that. And again, all these are built on each other. But that's what he's talking about. OK, the sexual revolution is not a mere broadening. It is instead an overturning of what has been done before. It's an actual we're just going to completely turn it over. It's not enough to just kind of add some things to it. We need to completely turn it over. So it is a overthrowing or a repudiation or a rejection. This is number one under D here, a rejection of old categories. He uses a, a variety of different adjectives there. And then letter two, then it's not just what behavior it's about identity. And that's that other blank. They're all related to each other. Sex has changed from something that people do, but instead is now what people are. That is a huge difference. So when he looks back at ancient Greece and Rome, yeah, you can find homosexuality, homosexual behavior. In ancient Greece and Rome, right? You can just you can see it. That's why Paul's writing about it, 1 Corinthians 6 and other places, because they saw that sort of stuff. That's why in the book of Leviticus, there's prohibitions against it. Because it was since time immemorial, this has been going on. It's not like it's new. Okay. What's happened is, is people have said that behavior is not something I do, it's who I am as a person. That's a huge shift. And he I think he's right to say it. And that word orientation, he's did not exist until like the late 1800s. I think it was a German sociologist or somebody that identified it and used it as a term, as an actual category. That category did not exist. And so Christian, this is where I, this is where I'm going to give you some practical things. I try my best as a Christian teacher and as somebody who holds the Christian worldview to avoid using the word orientation on purpose. I might say the word, for example, same sex attracted because that's a desire, right? I might say um, somebody who struggles with same sex inclinations or somebody, you know what I mean? I may say something. I don't use the word orientation because I think that's a modern category that says your identity is found in your desires. And I think that makes us animals personally, because it means that you are not, no longer are you somebody created in the image of God accountable to him. No longer are you able to transform and change and no, you are bound to your animalistic urges. So really you're, it's back to that imminent frame thing. Nature is all there is. You're just another higher animal. And if you're just another higher animal, then you're just beholden to your desires. See how these all kind of connect? I think he's right about this. And this is why I love this. This is helping me think. And it's adjusted the way I teach. I used to just kind of roll with these and just say, okay, how can a Christian speak to this? And so that's why I, I don't like terms like, and this is just me personally, okay? I, you, if you have your own family situations, that's one thing. I don't like using terms like white Christian, black Christian, gay Christian. Are you in Christ or are you not? 
why is there a modifier? Do you see what I'm saying? Because now you're saying that your personal identity somehow is transforming who you are in Christ when it should be the other way around. Christ should be transforming you. You see what I'm saying? You've reversed the order. It's instead a Christian who struggles with three, you know, X. You are a Christian who happens to be African. You're a Christian who, you see what I'm saying? You're taking something that is not fundamental and making it your fundamental and then trying to baptize it. That's a, that's a problem, but it's hard for us to, uh, it's hard for us to unpack that, unpack that noodle, so to speak, because we all live in this. This is a presupposition of the culture. And even if we do our best, we're still impacted with it because it's just how we're raised and it's how we're bombarded in the media. It's how our neighbors think. It's how our churches think in some cases. And so to extra extricate yourself from that thinking is very, very difficult to do. And so I'm working on it just so you know. When I'm talking to students last week, I mentioned, what do you want to be when you grow up? I've tried to stop saying that and say, what has God called you to do? Or what, you know, that I've tried to change that because who you want to be when you grow up means you determine your reality. You determine your happiness. You determine, you see what I mean? So I'm trying myself to work on some of those phrases that I just say without even thinking about it. All right. So you have some discussion questions. This is, we have like two or three minutes here. I'll, I'll, we'll start session two next week where he talks about Jean-Jacques Rousseau. We got off five minutes. We can go past the bell a little bit. I just want to be respectful of those that need to go to the, to the other service. But what are some of the ways, and I've mentioned some already, you see some of the four streams as outlined by Truman in this introduction. Where do you see it? There's a lot of ways we can go with this, but I'm just curious. Does anybody want to contribute? Where, where have you set, seen some of the stuff he's talking about? Go ahead. So I remember as a kid thinking of plunging necklines being a bit immodest and there's a, a picture out on the news of um, a young lady she's an actress singer etc um, Lenny Kravitz daughter she has on a dress that is nothing but a beaded mesh with nothing under it yeah and she's just telling the whole world well you know you're just stupid if you think there's a problem with this yeah and that to me was like well, there's a whole, uh, there's a whole every year, there's a whole hashtag about women being topless as like some sort of liberating thing. It's a, it's, it's all, it's, every year it happens. Um, so yes, that, that, the modesty example is a great example. That's one of the things one, I'm thankful I teach in a Christian school because we have a dress code. They have to wear uniforms. You don't have to worry about that. You know, I mean, yeah, do the girls kind of try to, you know, every once in a while test the limits on how high they can wear their skirt shirt. But I mean, it's very minimal compared to what usually I would be dealing with, right? So I am thankful for that. As a male teacher with 18-year-old girls, I'm thankful that we have a dress code. Just telling you that. Uh, just, just being honest, it's just nice not to have to worry about those things. And so that's one way we are countercultural as a school. We don't even have to try hard. We just make them wear, wear things. You know what I mean? And it's already countercultural. Um, that's, I'm thankful for that. I am. And actually, if you ask the students, they won't say that they like it when they're in it, but then they appreciate it later. And the reason they do is think about the social pressure of conform, like wearing the latest thing, wearing the you know competition. And so like my, I can afford the greatest and newest clothes, but this student can't afford those clothes, right? Yeah. It's an equalizer. Yeah. You see what I mean? So I do like that. Any any others? What are some other examples we've seen? It? Go ahead. Well, when I was in high school, your skirt could not be any shorter than if you knelt down, the bottom of it had to touch the floor. No. <laughs> and they would take you in and measure. <laughs> We have the, uh, the we have the arm length thing, you know, the tip of your fingers. That's the thing for. I, I joke with people because I have like little T Rex arms. I was like, well, my daughter, you're gonna have to do longer if she if she was at school because she's gonna, you know, she's got these little A's arms. You gotta extend that down. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I'm just kind of I'm just messing because I do I got the short arm thing. Maybe they'll get my wife's arms be luckier than it'll be more appropriate. You know. So yeah, go ahead, Ralph. Where are you gonna add? When I uh, 
when I was in the service, Paul Cerner, and Gina recognized this, it, tattoos were verboten. If you got caught with a tattoo, I remember being in Hong Kong, one of my friends got a tattoo. Uh, he was actually brought up by char on charges for yep. dis destroying government property. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we were rather astonished. And it wasn't often, it didn't happen often, but. Right. Uh, of charges. Yes. <laughs> and then and going fast forward, when I became a police officer, you, you couldn't be hired if you had any visible tattoos. And because they were having trouble hiring, they said, okay, if you can have some visible tattoos, you can cover them. So we all had to wear long sleeve wool shirts in the hot. Los, Los Angeles, Angeles City. <laughs> now, if you look around today, and it was, it was always considered kind of a, you were maybe not quite so sophisticated if you had tattoos or several of them. You might have your Marine Corps League or something, but but now you see people walking around, they look like walking graffiti boards, and they're proud of it. And and I find myself, sometimes I'll be looking at this, and somebody will say, what are you looking at? Well, I wanted to see what that tattoo said. You did want me to see it, right? You know. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's fun. that's a really good example. I'll give you two examples. Uh, maybe I'll try to find some video examples of this too, of expressive individualism. Tattoo is a great example because if you're only a cow to yourself and it's about self-expression, well, my body's a canvas. And it's just my, you see what I'm saying? And it's just art. It's just art. And it's my way of expressing what's important to me, whether it's I put my wife's name or my kids' names or somebody who was dear to me that passed away, or maybe I... Um, some people do, do with political candidates they love or whatever. It's just, it's my body and I'm, it's right. I don't have this, like, it's not like I think the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? Because there's no transcendent frame. There's, it's all imminent. And so it's an imminent frame. You're not accountable. Why wouldn't you use your body for your own self-expression? Because that's way, that's one of the most visible ways that you can show people who you really are well, or what you really value. Go ahead. Step beyond that, we have somebody who lost a baby and you know, to us, we know what that baby is, and it's okay, and I will tear up, but she dealt with it by getting a tattoo of a butterfly. That's how she copes with that loss, is by getting a tattoo. Yeah, and so it's, again, that's expressive, right? Expressive individualism. But I think it's more than expression. It's her way of coping, because yeah. she doesn't know the truth. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think you're absolutely right about that. And I think there's there's a couple other things. I was, the last one I'm going to use, and I know I need to let some of you go to the 11 service, um, is uh, in the in a footnote, uh, Truman, and I kind of put it in here. He talks about he he quotes a guy named Roger Scruton. Roger Scruton was a British philosopher who was knighted. And Roger Scruton, it's a fascinating little thing here. And in this in this book, Roger Scruton, I'm just going to read this to you. Roger Scruton notes the shift and the understanding of selfhood relative to forms of dancing. This is fascinating to me. Think about this. Commenting on earlier forms of dancing, he observes that such typically assumed live music, formal steps that needed to be learned, and a meaning or pleasure derived from the individual being part of a coordinated whole, a social group, right? Everybody's waltzing together. Think 1800s, right? Or everybody's at a square dance. Or, you know, fill that in, right? Okay, so it continues here. Such dancing was thus deeply social, and the ways in which the individual expressed his or her identity was communal. He contrasts this with modern nightclub-style dancing in which the individual simply, to use the colloquial phrase, does his or her own thing. The former, he says, involves dancing with others, the latter dancing at others, which incidentally has also involved the sexualizing of dancing's purpose consonant with the sexualizing of society. He has a whole thing called Dancing Properly. It's, a, it's like a, a journal article he wrote. But if you look, if you can watch videos, look at how, like in the 1600s, the king would dance a minuet with his court. Right. There's actually a, this, like the king dances and it was like a big thing that the king is doing this with his court. It's very social, very formal. 
the king does this, you do this, right? It's very, everything's, everything's formalized. Okay, now, right, and even with a square dance, right? Everybody knows how to line dance. Everybody knows, and it's, it's at a barn raising, very social event, okay? And so now what you have is, I'm going to go to the nightclub, and this is my move, and this is your move, and then we just kind of just turn the lights down and just do whatever we want, and it's often highly sexualized. That's a very, very big shift societally, and even on something small like dancing, which we all just kind of assume. If you were a gentleman, you learn certain steps. Now, if you're a gentleman, you just, you know, try to do it better than the other dude. <laughs> okay? You know, you know what I'm saying? It's just something has shifted in the culture that way. So that's an example that Roger Scruton, British philosopher, who just passed away like two or three years ago. That was his way of looking at this rise of the modern self. Any other? And so, again, we'll get to solutions. I want it. We need to. The reason we don't have solutions yet, at least not as many as you may like, is you kind of have to unpack it first to know what we're talking about. Right. So in order to have a solution, you have to understand what you're dealing with first. Okay, you're making we're making a diagnosis first. We're not doing the cure yet. We got to figure out what we're dealing with first. So next week we'll do Rousseau and the the idea that society is what keeps you down, that civilization is the problem, that's stopping you from being your authentic you. We're gonna start doing that. That'll be next week. Let's uh, say the blessing on ourselves and we'll close. Thanks for being here and I appreciate your attendance. The Lord bless you and God bless us. Sorry, and keep us. The Lord make His face shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace. Amen. If you have any questions or comments, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org. And make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go.